It's good to see you this morning. Happy New Year to everyone. I want to welcome our guests that are with us today. Thank you for worshiping with us, and I wish we had some heat for you. We normally do have heat, so this is not the norm, but glad you're here this morning. I hope and pray everyone had a great New Year's Eve and a wonderful New Year and and are ready to see what God has in store for us for the year 2010. Uh, something, Something about a brand new year that's just just refreshing, is it not? I mean, it's almost like you can just turn the page, start a brand new chapter, uh, get a clean slate, as Brother Daniel said. Uh, it just kind of, it's a time to just start over. And, uh, and I want to encourage you to start over with the Lord in the center of your life, in the center of your marriage, center of your home, uh, and let Him be in the center of all your goals and values and everything that you're trying to achieve and, and uh, do in the year 2010. With that kind of being the... Um, with this being the new year and with that being the thought process, and I just wanted to share with you a little bit about our church. Matter of fact, I'm going to, I'm going to start a series uh, today that's going to last about eight weeks, seven weeks, it's going to be eight sermons, uh, seven more weeks, and I want to talk about some habits of a healthy church. And the reason I want to do this is because going into year, year 2010, I want to be sure that we as a church family... And as a body of believers, and, and more specifically, Victory Church, that we get started in the right direction with everybody on the same page. And uh, so I'm going to be sharing a lot with you over the next six or seven weeks. And I want to encourage you to come back every single Sunday as we start unpacking some of these habits of a healthy, healthy church. And this morning we're going to look and we're going to ask the question, what makes a healthy church? But before we jump into the Word of God. I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, please, to the book of Jonah. Now, that's an Old Testament book. It's one of the minor prophets. It may be, one, it may be a little difficult uh, to find, uh, but I want you to turn to the book of Jonah. I want to start in the book of Jonah, and then I'm going to jump out over to the book of Acts chapter 2, and I want to jump around in some other passages of Scripture. Then we're going to come back and we're going to finish up in the book of Jonah in this message this morning. But I want to ask the question, what makes a healthy church? And then I want us to go back and look at the command that God gave Jonah. In Jonah chapter 1, is everybody there? In Jonah chapter 1, it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. In verse 2, he says, get up. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach. I want to stop right there. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, said, Jonah, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach. And of course, for those of us that have been raised in church, you've heard this story all through Sunday school. It's one of the favorite kiddie stories of the Bible, Jonah and the well or Jonah and the big fish. But I don't want us to fast forward into that story too far. I just want you to see that Jonah, that God gave a command to Jonah. Jonah, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach. Well, let's pause right there. I want to go back in my own life. And some of you will be able to make this journey with me. But back in 1998, when I was pastoring a church in the mountains of North Carolina, I loved that church. That church loved me, so they told, they told me they did anyway. I mean, it was, a, it was just a wonderful mountain setting. You would love it. You would love to visit it sometime. Right beside our church was a trout stream, and 
It wasn't uncommon at all for some of the guys to pull up before church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and they all had fishing poles in the back of their truck, and they'd drop over, and they'd catch a few trout, and they'd catch them and release them and catch them and release them, and then come on into church, and that's just kind of the environment where we live there. But while I was there, I felt God burdening my heart to get into home missions, into church planning, and start a church. Now, I didn't know where it would be, but in God's providence, it wound up being that we started Victory Church in March of 1999 in Muscoota, Illinois. From the mountains of North Carolina, 650 miles northwest, we wound up in the flatland, the cornfields of Muscoota. Now, that's only God. And what God impressed upon my spirit was go there and plant a church. And the premise of what I want you to to declare is simply just the gospel message. Just share the gospel and let folks know that life is really all about relationships and not necessarily religion, but a relationship with God and a relationship one with another. And that's been at the heartbeat of this ministry for the past 10 and a half years, almost soon to be 11 years. God came to Jonah and said, Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach. The Lord laid upon my heart, go to Muscoota and preach. And we've been at this now for almost, March will be 11 years that we've been at this. And we've seen God do some wonderful things in our church. We've seen Him bring us from three people to where we are today. We've seen Him bring us to a facility where we had three acres and a building, and we outgrew the building. We had to sell and move into a school, and then we bought tw- right at 21 acres or in the purchase or the process of purchasing that land now. And here we are at Moy Elementary School. We're praying and hoping and praying and hoping and praying and giving that one day we'll get a building on that property right out here on Scott Troy Road. And I believe God will see us through all that. I believe one day we will have a building there. If it's in my timetable, it would have already been there. And those on our leadership team know how sometimes impatient I can be about that. But I do know that God is working in our midst. And I do know that God is going to lead us one day to a building on that property. But in the meantime, we are to be building a church. Now understand that a church is not brick and mortar. A church is the people. And for us to build a healthy church, then we must lay some foundation work in our church. And we must cultivate some habits. And some of these habits are what I want to unpack over the next seven weeks. There are seven habits that I want to talk to you about as we talk about what does it take to build a healthy, healthy church. Now, in our culture today, it's easy to get distracted. Matter of fact, it's easy to get confused on what is and is not possibly a healthy church. Sometimes we'll look at a building that will seat thousands and we'll think, boy, that must be a healthy church. Or we'll look at a building or a a church or a ministry that, that has thousands of people coming to it and think, boy, that must be a healthy church. Or we'll look at a facility or a ministry that may be bringing in millions of dollars and we think, boy, that must be a healthy church. 
Or we'll see multiple buildings on, on, on tremendous amounts of acreage of land. and think, That must be a healthy church. For some, that's true. But that isn't necessarily what defines whether a church is healthy or not. You see, I know some ministries out there that, that are drawing thousands and thousands of people. But I listen to the pastor preach, and boy, I can tell. And I know that his theology is way out of the book. And it makes me cringe a little bit when I hear some of the teachings from the pulpit where thousands of people are flocking. And boy, I, you know what? I think if Jesus came and judged and looked at the ministries in America today, I'm thinking he may judge it a little bit differently than how we judge it. We judge success by numbers and how big something is. Matter of fact, as you ride around in neighborhoods and housing developments and you see these, these mansions of homes and you think, boy, that must be a successful individual. And sometimes we bring that into the church world. And we see the mega ministry and think, boy, that must be successful. I think God is going to look a little bit different at a particular ministry. Now, I'm not saying all big churches are not successful. I know a lot of churches that are doing tremendous work. Matter of fact, First Baptist Church here in O'Fallon is doing a tremendous work. Pastor Doug Mutton. I mean, I pray for their ministry all the time. They're doing a tremendous work in this community. They are sharing the gospel. In our current setup, we don't, we're not able to have Wednesday night services. We will in the near future as soon as we get some space rented. And, and hopefully in the next month or so, we'll be able to start that. But there have been Wednesday evenings when I slide in over there and I just slide in. I just sit on the pew and I listen to Pastor Doug. And man, he's preaching the gospel. I mean, so I'm not saying that just because you're big, you're, you're out of the book. No. What I am saying is that God is going to look deeper than just our buildings and our budgets and our facilities. He's going to look at our hearts. And he's going to look at our motives. And that's what I want to unpack a little bit this morning as we talk about what makes a healthy church. I want to try to look about seven different habits. Now, before I unpack these habits for you this morning, and I'm just going to hit them briefly, I want to talk to you or just share with you very quickly on what makes a habit desirable. There's four things, four elements that makes a habit desirable. Now, every single one of us going into the brand new year, probably New Year's Eve or, or New Year's Day, we're thinking about our life and we're thinking, boy, I need to break that habit and I need to break that. There's some undesirable habits that we have. But there are some habits that are desirable. There are some habits that we need to cultivate more. There are some habits we need to continue doing. But what makes a desirable habit? I think there's four different things. Behaviors, if you will, that go into it. Number one, it needs to be intentional. We need to be specific about what we're doing. Aristotle once said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think that's a very true statement. The unexamined life probably isn't much worth living. But I think the same thing is true when we talk about the church or a ministry. The church that's unexamined probably isn't much use or or the ministry that's unexamined in other words we need to be intentional and we need to be specific about what it is we're trying to do and the habits that we're trying to develop not only intentional but strategic the habit becomes strategic when we do that particular habit on purpose thirdly the habit needs to be productive now i realize that a church is not a business But we do need to look around at our church and our ministry and say, is this ministry productive? Is this particular thing we're doing in the ministry of Victory Church, is it productive? If it isn't, we need to stop it. Hello? 
If it is, we need to keep doing it. But we need to be intentional, and we also need to be sure that it's strategic, and we need to be sure that it's productive. But guys, do you realize that you can have intentional habits and strategic habits that can be productive habits, but if they don't match the fourth criteria of a healthy habit, then we certainly don't want to do it. It must be biblical. You see, everything that we do must be within the confines of Scripture. It must be a biblical habit. So with that being the habits and what we're looking at, let me share with you seven specific habits. And I'm going to hit these quickly because I'm going to spend a week or a sermon on every single one of these habits over the next seven weeks. Habit number one that we need to develop and we need to cultivate as we carry out God's command, as he said, Jonah, rise up, go to Nineveh and preach. In 1998, I feel God impressed upon my spirit and my family. Rise up, go plant a church, build a church. As we are carrying out God's command, I think there are seven habits that we need to pay attention to. And these seven habits could be the seven cornerstones or the seven pillars of Victory Church. I mean, they're, they're that intentional. They're that strategic. And these are seven areas that I pay attention to all the time whenever I think about the life of Victory Church. Now, I could almost do a series of seven messages on each one of the habits, but I'll spare you that. But I am going to spend a week on every single one of these starting next week. But habit number one is leadership. Habit number one is leadership. Guys, do you realize that there is no way in the world that one person can do everything in a church? Leadership must come from the pews. And what I mean by that is that we all must rise up and be leaders in specific areas in the ministry, within the ministry of Victory Church. I can't do it all. Matter of fact, that's one of the lessons that God taught me at the church that I was in in North Carolina. You see, I thought I was the only one that could do everything the right way. I mean, I did the bulletins and I mean, I did so much. And that was one of the lessons that God taught me. Listen, you can't go to a church in a ministry and do everything. It's your job to raise up leaders. This past week, I was reading once again out of the book of Exodus. And I was reading how Jethro went to Moses his son-in-law. And he identified some things in Moses' life in Exodus chapter number 18. If you have your Bibles, turn there, if you will, quickly with me. I won't be long here. But in Exodus chapter number 18, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came to him. In verse number 13, Exodus chapter 18, verse 13. And the next day Moses sat down to judge the people. And they stood around Moses from morning until evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw everything he was doing for them, he asked, What is this thing you're doing for the people? Why are you alone sitting as judge while all the people stand around you from morning until evening? Now get the picture here. Here's Moses. He's judging the people. And all of the people, all the children of Israel, they're all coming around Moses to hear what thus saith the Lord about a particular issue, whatever it is, going on in their life. And from morning till evening, day after day, the people are hovering around Moses, waiting to hear what Moses has to say. Jethro took note of this. Look what he says. Moses replied to his father-in-law in verse 15. 
because the people come to me to inquire of God. And whenever they have a dispute, it comes to me and I make a decision between the one man and the other. And I teach them God's statutes and laws. What you're doing is not good, Moses' father-in-law said to him. You will certainly wear out both yourself and these people who are with you because the task is too heavy for you. You can't do it alone. Jethro said, Moses, there's no way you can do this. You're going to wear the people out. You're going to wear yourself out. There's no way that one person, there's no way, Moses, that you can do this by yourself. Verse number 19. Now listen to me. I will give you some advice. And God be with you. You be the one to bring their cases to him, being God. Verse 20. Instruct them about the statutes and the laws and teach them the way to live and what they must do. But... You should select from all the people able men, God-fearing, trustworthy, and hating bribes. Place them over the people as officials of thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. And they should judge the people at all times. And then they can bring you every important case, but judge every minor case themselves. In this way, you will lighten your load and they will bear it with you. If you do this, and God so directs you, you'll be able to endure. And all these people will be able to go home satisfied. You know what Jethro told Moses? He said, Moses, listen, you're a godly man. And yes, you're teaching and you're leading in the right direction. He said, but you can't do it all yourself. You're going to have to train up some other men that's able to help you judge the people. Why? So that you can endure, Moses. Guys, you know what? In the life of Victory Church, we've got to be intentional and we must be strategic in training up more and more and more leaders in our body. Now, we're going to talk more about this next week. But one of, the, one of the strategies of Victory Church, whenever we talk about leadership, is that we have apprentices. In other words, we don't want one person to do one job and that one person be the only person that knows how to do that one job. Hey, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt, felt the pain. Hello? We don't want that. Listen, I want Victory Church to be able to hit on all eight cylinders every single week with or without one individual. Hello? This, this thing's bigger than any of us on an individual basis. So therefore, we need to have apprentices at every single level. We need to be training somebody to do what we do. There's no big eyes and little U's around here. We're all in this thing together. And everyone needs to have an apprentice. And I'll talk more about that next week. But habit number one is leadership. Habit number two is evangelism. Evangelism. These are strategic, intentional, productive, biblical behaviors that we're trying to implement. And habit number two is evangelism. In Matthew chapter 28, in verse 18 and following, that's the Great Commission. Matter of fact, our whole vision statement is building these six families to carry out the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. And here's the Great Commission. In Matthew, in Mark chapter uh, 16, it talks about going to all the world and preach the gospel. Matthew 28 says where to go and teach them and baptize them and make disciples. I mean, listen, there's actually five Great Commissions given, one in the four Gospels, one in the book of Acts. We are to be going and sharing the gospel. And we must be intentional about our evangelism strategy. Now, here at Victory Church, and I'll talk about this in a few weeks, 
Here at Victory Church, our evangelism strategy is servant evangelism. In other words, that's how we do evangelism. We go out and we serve our community. We build relationships with our community. This past Christmas, we just finished up the gift wrapping. Here in a couple of weeks, we're going to Scott Air Force Base and we're serving dinner and having games with the airmen over on base. I mean, that's, that's our evangelism strategy. We go out and we wash windshields in the summertime. We went to Ace Hardware and we worked there and cleaned their store and stocked their shelves. We're going to be doing free uh, water giveaway and maybe this winter do some hot chocolate giveaway and, and, and just get up and just serve our community. That's our strategy. And we're going to be very intentional about that. What separates a healthy, highly effective church from the rest when it comes to evangelism? Guys, do you realize that the majority of all Protestant churches believe in evangelism? The difference is whether you engage in it or not. We all preach it. We all believe in it. We know we're supposed to be doing it. But the problem is many are not engaged in evangelism. Now, there aren't as many people engaged in evangelism here in our church as I would like to see. I mean, I know whenever we have an SE event, servant evangelism event, I can, I can almost, in my mind, almost tell you who's going to be there. And those are the individuals that show up. But guys, listen, we need to all do this. Hello? Say amen or on me. We all need to engage. Everybody can go out and wash a windshield. Everybody can wrap a gift. Everybody can do an act of kindness and service to someone. Hello? I mean, we're not asking you to go out and teach a theological lesson. We're not asking you. Just go out and show kindness. That's how we do our evangelism. And we've got to be intentional about that. Habit number three, jot this one down, is ministry. Not only leadership, not only evangelism, but ministry. In Romans chapter 12, it talks about how we are all one body, but many parts. And every single part is very important. Also in 1 Corinthians, it talks about the body. And it talks about how some are an eye, or it gives the, uh, the illustration of an eye and a hand and an ear and, and a nose and how we're all part of the body and everybody's important. Guys, do you realize that Victory Church, we don't want to build a... I guess, a basis, if you will, for, for spectators. We want to build a ministry where everybody gets involved. I mean, we don't want people to come just sit and soak and listen and go home. We want people to get engaged. And there is ministry for all of us to be involved in. We've got to break away from this consumer mentality that, that's just, it's just, I don't know, it's, it's plaguing our churches in the 21st century. What can the church do for me? And we look for a church that can minister to all of my family's needs. And we go there and we just let them minister like going to a spa. Guys, that's not what church is about. Church is about getting engaged. Church is about finding our, our area of ministry. And every single one of you are gifted. I mean, you're good at something. Every single one of you are a 10 at something. And you know what you need to be doing? You need to be using what you're a 10 at in the local church. You see, a lot of times we think, boy, I am good at this. I can go out and make a lot of money with this. And that's all well and good. Nothing wrong with making money. But God didn't put you here on this earth just to make money. He put you here on this earth to make a difference. And the way we make a difference, we invest in other people's lives. Well, the best way to do that is through the local church. Bring that gift that you have. Yeah, use it out there in the secular world to make money. That's okay. But also bring that gift you have and use it through the church. To serve and minister to others. Habit number four is worship. In Acts chapter 2, I want you to turn there if you will quickly. Acts chapter 2. 
You guys okay? I know it's cold. I'm moving around. I'm feeling pretty good, but I know you're probably freezing to death. Are you? You okay? Cotton, you okay? <laughs> it's cold. I'm hurrying. I'm hurrying. I promise I'm going to hit these. We're going to try to wrap this thing up, get you guys moving around a little bit. But habit number four is worship. Look, if you will, in Acts chapter 2. In verse 41, and this is after the message that Peter preached. So those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread and prayers. And fear came upon everyone. And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Guys, do you realize that in this early church that we see here in Acts chapter number 2, and the Bible says about 3,000, man, that's church growth, is it not? About 3,000 were added that day to the church. Daily people were being saved and being added to the church. And here it unpacks a little bit of what they were doing. But it says that, look if you in verse number 43, that fear came upon everyone. You know what that fear was? That fear was worship. There was a deep sense of awe of who God was and what God was doing in their midst that settled on them. And guys, for our church to be healthy, we must be a church that has that Ah, that's who God is. We must have that that fear. Not that we're afraid of Him, but that we're in awe of Him. And we need to be a church that can engage in worship. George Barna did a survey among Christian adults in churches. And the result, the statement that he made after the survey was that America has a worship problem. The reason he said that, because he did this survey, and he, he, he surveyed regular church-going adults. Here's what he found. Regular church-going adults. He found that one-third of adults, one-third of all active adults that go to church on a regular basis, one-third of them never experienced God's presence in the past year. One-third. That's profound. One out of every three adults said in this survey over the past year of going to church, I never experienced God's presence. He surveyed the younger adults and he found out that the younger adults were more likely to state that God is a distant, impersonal reality to them. In other words, he's not really engaged in their life at all. Not even real to them. I'm talking about church-going people. I'm not talking about unchurched. I'm talking about church-going people. And even among those who said God's presence was evident to them, most of them said that it only happened one or two times through the course of a year that they felt God's presence. Guys, you know what's happening? What's happening is we just kind of just go through the motions coming to church on Sunday. We really just kind of come in, go, go back home. We don't really engage. We don't even prepare our hearts before we come. We sit up all night long playing whatever and then roll in here on Sunday morning and roll back out and didn't engage at all with God. Hello? You see, guys, we got to realize when we come to church on Sunday morning, we're coming to meet the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
And there should be some, something that we engage in worship and we feel His presence. Hello? And I'm not just talking about just in singing. A lot of times we think worship and singing are synonymous. Now that's just an element of worship. But there's so much more to worship in our own life. America has a worship problem. I believe it's true. We've got to cultivate a worship or a habit of worship. Habit number five is discipleship. Habit number five is discipleship. You see, we believe at Victory Church. Matter of fact, you may, you may ask the question, how do you judge the success of Victory Church? Well, we judge it around here by what we call RTLs, radically transformed lives. That's what we're looking for, radically transformed lives. Matter of fact, a baseball team, how do you judge the success of the St. Louis Cardinals or the Chicago Cubs or the Pittsburgh Pirates or whoever your favorite baseball team is, how do you judge their success? You judge their success by what? RBIs. I mean, they can have a great defense. They can have a tremendous pitcher. But if they don't score any runs, they're not going to win any games, right? So you judge their success really by the RBIs. Are they batting runs in? Are they winning ball games? And if they get enough runs in, they'll win. At Victory Church, we judge our success by RTLs. Are we seeing lives radically transformed? If we are, we know that particular ministry is success. If, if not, then possibly that's something we need to look at. But as we think about discipleship, if our goal is life transformation, if that's the goal of Victory Church, we want to see lives radically transformed, then, get this now, theological education must be very important in what we do. In other words, discipleship and studying God's Word and digging out the principles of God's Word must be on a high level. It's one of the pillars of our church. Discipleship. Now here at Victory, and we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, we've implemented a strategy called D6 where we're trying to connect the church and the home together with biblical principles so that we can all grow in our faith. And we'll discuss that more in the weeks to come. George Barna also did a survey of regular church-going Christians. Here's what he found. Fewer than 10% of all born-again Christians possess a biblical worldview that informs their thinking and their behavior. Guys, did you hear that? Fewer than 10% of born-again Christians have a biblical worldview in which they process their thinking and their actions through. Fewer than 10%. And guys, we've got to raise that. And we've got to raise that in the life of Victory Church. And the way that we are going to do it is through our D6 paradigm and our D6 structure of what we're trying to do in our discipleship area. Habit number six, jot this one down, is fellowship. In Acts chapter 2, in verse number 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Guys, listen, the church is not, as I've already said, brick and mortar. Two by fours and blocks and shingles in a parking lot. The church are people. And people have got to connect in true, genuine fellowship. It's the Greek word koinonia. And fellowship and casserole are not synonymous. It doesn't mean they just ate together. Yes, they did eat together. But there was something deeper taking place in those community of believers. They were sharing life together. In other words, when one church member was rejoicing, the others were rejoicing along with that individual. When one was weeping, they were weeping along with that individual. 
And I intentionally saved an announcement for right here that I want to share with you. We are a church family. We're to rejoice with each other when there's a time to rejoice. But we're also to grieve and mourn with each other when there's a time to grieve and mourn. Many of you probably already know, we sent it out through the church newsletter, prayer request, that Matt and Leslie had a miscarriage this week, New Year's Eve. And guys, you know what we need to be doing for them? We need to be weeping with them. We need to be praying for them. We need to let them know, hey, we're here. We love you. God's still in control. We're going to weep with you. We're going to embrace you. We're going to help you. And we need to reach out to them in this time. Hello? You do that to them. They need to know their church family's here. And that's what that's called fellowship, guys. That's that koinonia. That's that coming alongside a brother and sister in Christ and saying, hey, I'm with you through this hard place and through this hard time. You've got a shoulder to lean on right here. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to be there. Whatever, I'm here. Guys, I don't, I don't see how people make it without a church family. Hello? We need to be there for them this week. And you know what? I don't know what next week holds for you. I don't know what next week holds for me. I may need you next week. And you may need someone in this week to come. And boy, that's what makes a church so great. Is that we can have that fellowship one with another. And it's one of the habits that we need to cultivate. And habit number seven is stewardship. Habit number seven is stewardship. It says in verse number 45, it says they sold their possessions and their property and distributed the proceeds to all as everyone had need. Guys, for our church to be successful, for our church to be healthy, this is a habit, a pillar, a foundational area in which we've got to cultivate, pay attention to. And it's the area of stewardship. We've got to realize that we own nothing. That God owns it all. That we're just a manager of all the resources that He puts in our accounts, if you will. And we've got to be good stewards. And we're going to talk more about stewardship. So in wrapping it up, what makes a healthy church? Look at this, if you will, please. I think I have it on the screen for you. A healthy, highly effective church is where the people are stepping up into roles of leadership, consistently introducing non-Christians to Christ, joyfully involved in serving in ministry, truly worshiping God on a regular basis, learning and applying principles from God's Word, developing significant relationships with other believers in the church, and good managers of God's resources. Let me wrap up this sermon by going back to the book of Jonah. Turn back, if you will, please. Jonah chapter 1 in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. In verse 2, get up. Go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it. Because their wickedness has confronted me. That was the command from God. God Jonah, this is God. Get up, go to Nineveh and preach. But what was Jonah's response? Look, if you will, verse 3. However, Jonah got up to flee to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. He went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, and he paid the fare, and he went down into it, into the ship, into it to go with them to Tarshish from the Lord's presence. And then the Lord, Lord, the Lord 
hurled a violent wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break apart and the sailors were afraid and each cried out to his own or to their God and they threw the ship's cargo into the sea and to lighten the load. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down to the lowest part of the vessel and he had stretched out and fallen asleep. The story goes on to say that Jonah said, you know what, God's? I've gone against what God's called me to do. I went down to Tarshish to run away from God's presence. I went down to the ship. When the storm came, I went deeper down into the ship. Guys, I'm the reason the storm is here. Throw me overboard. They finally threw Jonah overboard. He went down into the depths of the sea. He went down into the belly of the whale or the big fish, which took him down to the depths of the sea. Guys, listen. If we don't do what God's called us to do, if we don't carry out God's plan that He's placed within our hearts and our lives, the only other direction to go is down. Down, 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 down. And Jonah found himself in the depths of the sea, in the belly of the well, because he disobeyed what God had told him to do. Fast forward, if you will, to Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And I've got this highlighted in my Bible. I've got it underlined. I've got it highlighted in yellow. And right above this, It says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. In my Bible right here, you can see it. I wrote, thankfully, our God is a God of second chances. Amen. He came to Jonah, said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, God, I don't want to go to Nineveh. I'm going to go this way. And when he went that way, he found himself at the bottom. Finally, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. And thank God it did. And Jonah repented and he went and preached. Guys, it's a brand new year. First Sunday of the year 2010. Maybe as we look back over our life as <clears throat> on an individual basis... Maybe as we look back over our church life over the past year, maybe we've gotten away from some of these habits. Maybe we've gotten away from the leadership and the worship and the ministry and the evangelism and the discipleship and the stewardship habits. Maybe we've gotten away from those as a church. Maybe we've gotten away from those in our own personal life. Maybe we're not really engaged like we should be engaged at all, spiritually speaking. Maybe you look at your own life and you ask, In the area of discipleship, am I reading God's word like I should be reading God's word? Am I praying? Is my devotional life where it needs to be? Is my private time, my God not time where that needs to be? In the area of stewardship, am I giving in my tithe and my offering like I should be giving in my tithe and my offering? Over the last year, have I done what God's called me to do? Jonah did not. And you know what? Many of us did not over the year 2009. But this is a brand new year. The slate is clean. It's a fresh start. And our God, I've already showed you, is a God of second chances. And I wonder right now, as we just have a time of meditation, and I just want you to bow your head and just close your eyes. And I want you to think about your life. Think about your life, if you will, over the past year. 2009. Did you let God down in some areas? 
Are there some areas in your life where you say, God, I'm sorry. I've let you down. Now, what I'd like for you to do is remember that our God is a God of second chances. And right now, right now, he's knocking on your heart's door. And he's saying, I'm here. I'm calling unto you. I'm inviting you once again to do what I've called you to do. For some, it may be salvation. For some, it may be the time when you just need to give your heart and your life to Christ. He's knocking at your heart's door this morning. Right now, I want you to open up your heart and allow him to come in. For others, you may have already done that. But you know as well as I do that God has been dealing with you in certain areas of your life and maybe we've let him down. Maybe it's in the area of service at Victory Church. What is God calling you to do? What is your part? Guys, don't put it off any longer. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to make things right with you and God. I wonder as every head is bowed and every eye is closed and please no one's going to be looking around. But if God has spoke to your heart today and you need God once again and maybe he's fingered around in your heart and you feel like he's given you a second chance and you want to renew that commitment and that covenant that you've made with God once before, we simply just raise your hand. I just want to, I just want to pray, pray with you. I'm not going to draw any attention to you. Amen. Are there others? Amen. Amen. Are there others? God's a God of second chances. Amen. Let's start the year 2010 off right. Let's just start it off right. Let me pray for you. Father, for these individuals right now that have raised their hand, there are many. God, thank you that you're a God of second chances. God, I just pray that you would forgive us of our sins. We pray, God, and ask you to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, that you would just help us, God, to live for you. And Father, I pray for these that raise their hand that right now that they would feel your presence, they would feel your touch. God, you'd speak to their heart. They would ask you to forgive them. God, restore them into a right relationship and fellowship with you. Maybe there's one here today that's never invited you into their heart and their life. God, may they pray this prayer right now in their seat. Just pray after me. Say, dear God, I realize that I'm a sinner. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior give my life to you. Father, I pray for our church. God, you've brought us this far and sometimes I, sometimes, God, I don't even believe. Sometimes I doubt. But God, you've brought us this far and I just know you're not going to leave us without us being able to get on that property one day with a building. But until that day comes, may we strive to develop these habits in our church. The habit of worship, discipleship, fellowship, ministry, 
the evangelism, the leadership, the stewardship. May we develop these habits in our church. May they become very real to every single one of us. Help us all to do our part to reach our community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask your blessings on every individual for this brand new year, every family represented in this church. And help us, God, to do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.